Hey everyone, Saul Marquez here. Have you launched your podcast already and discovered what a pain it could be to keep up with editing, production, show notes, transcripts, and operations? What if you could turn over the keys to your podcast busy work while you do the fun stuff like expanding your network and taking the industry stage? Let us edit your first episode for free so you can experience the freedom. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez here. Today, I have the extraordinary privilege of hosting Dr. Tobias Silbertson. He's a trained biochemist and immunologist. He's a partner at McKinsey's Berlin office, and the focus of his work is healthcare innovation. Tobias leads the Global Health Tech Network, a community of 500 plus digital health startups, and he hosts the MedTech R&D Industry Roundtable and two pharma R&D industry roundtables. With McKinsey Germany, Tobias leads the My Experience Initiative that helps colleagues improve their health and well-being by better nutrition, sleep, fitness, and stress management. Tobias is married and lives in Berlin with his wife and two children, which is where we're uh, connecting him from today. Tobias, such a such a pleasure to have you here on on the podcast today. Hello, Saul. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're gonna we're gonna dive into a lot of the the work that you're up to in McKinsey, but also outside of it. I mean, you, you just have such a great presence in the healthcare sphere globally, but also in Europe. And so I'd love to first of all get to know you a little bit better and for the listeners and viewers to get to know you better, what inspires your work in healthcare? Well, so, um, you know, on the one hand, being a biochemist and immunologist, there is a, there is some professional background and connection there that uh, that got me got me into the healthcare industry. On the other hand, my my inspiration and my my motivation comes largely from my my personal story. I lost uh, several family members to cancer. When my father died of cancer four years ago, and then also my two children were born, um, it felt like half time in my life, right? Uh, I had a father for the first half of my life, and, and in the second half of my life, I'm a father myself. And um, mm. and that half time period felt very much like, um, what do I want to do in the second half of my life? And, and what, what work do I find meaningful, right? And uh, to cut a long story short, I decided that I would dedicate my work entirely on healthcare innovation and to healthcare innovation and uh, the question how improvements can be achieved and, and innovations being promoted in the health sector. Wow. Well, you know, sorry to hear about your dad, Tobias. You know, it's it's never easy. And then your kids came, which is a blessing. And then this is this just becomes kind of like the center point and your new trajectory. And so you're you're on this journey to improve healthcare, healthcare innovation. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and feel free to to focus on on the many organizations that you're a part of outside of McKinsey or inside of McKinsey, like take this where you want to take it. And how are you adding value to the healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about this all. Well, since, since I work on, on innovation topics with, with medical device companies, pharma companies, digital health startups and, and health ministries across Europe, I see that, that often there's a lot of opportunity around scaling scaling of healthcare innovation, right? Mm-hmm. And then a, a second area that, that I think is a very important area is what would the health system of the future look like, right? As a combination of digital and non-digital offers. 
Um, an example, in Western European countries, the health system already has more than 100 interventions available to deal with such a widespread disease um, like diabetes, right? And if we simply pack on another 25 or 50 digital solutions, we'll probably not improve the well-being of, uh, of patients or, or not be very helpful to citizens, right? And instead, I think we... We should more think about how we want to help citizens to live healthily in the future, right? And, and how should we think about the target image of, uh, of our health system more like, um, managing health and, and rather than, uh, waiting for people to become sick and then trying to help, uh, help fix the problem. Right. And, and as a company, we are, we are trying to add value in these areas by working very much on healthcare as a multidimensional opportunity. Right. And I just want to mention four things here. First, we very much look at the value perspective of healthcare and then also healthcare innovation, right? Which these days is a lot around digital health. So for example, we look at, um, when we look at the 25 main digital health categories, we look at uh, things like what value would these digital health solutions add to a health system if they were fully implemented, right? And, and looking at that both from a patient outcomes perspective as well as from a health system perspective and a healthcare economic perspective, right? Or secondly, bringing in um, healthcare analytics and, and these days almost more importantly, the the industrialization of healthcare analytics to play, right? So, um, so in that sense, our healthcare analytics unit comes from Formula One car racing, right? And they bring a, a huge focus on performance and speed. In Formula One, That's you need need data engineering to to get back to you and deliver something within days or weeks, right? Not in years. So, right. also in that sense, it's not enough also to develop certain use cases, right? It's more about productionizing these use cases, managing these algorithms in a, in a smart way, right? And then, um, and then third, um, also design is, uh, is, in my opinion, a huge thing for healthcare. Few people know uh, about that, right? But um, in the last few years, sort of my company has become one of the top 10 design firms uh, globally, both in terms of industrial design for physical products, um, but also then design of journeys and digital services. So uh, my design colleagues in Sweden, they, they've just helped design a, um, a surgical robot, for example, for which they've uh, just won the red dot uh, design award. And I think then the important thing is, is uh, really to bring it all together. If you bring a value focus and a analytics capability and a design capability all together, right, and uh, think about it sort of how would it work in a, in a health system and uh, what capability building do you need to do and how do some of the incentives or the economics be changed to, to make it really work. But that is sort of what I'm excited about and uh, what, what we are trying to work on. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. And Tobias, you mentioned yeah, there's a hundred ways to manage diabetes, like throw another 25. Like, how is that even going to guarantee that you're hitting the mark with the value you're trying to deliver? How is it going to guarantee better you know, health for people, better return on investment for employers? These are all questions we need to be thinking about. Very cool thought process here, the three pillars, value, analytics, and design. I think it's, uh, it's certainly something that, that we could probably learn more about from you so talk to us about how the approaches you guys are taking 
make it different than what's available today. And, you know, some examples there would be nice. Thank you. Happy to, to talk about that. So I think I, I first want to start with the, the purpose, right? Um, sort of the purpose that, that I had, I, I spoke about it in the first question, right? But also the purpose of, of our company, right? It's, a, it's to help create positive and enduring change in the world. And uh, that is pretty much the underlying thinking that we want to contribute and from, from where we are coming. And when we work on digital health, right, um, as an example, we then look at this uh, underlying value um, that, that we just talked about. And to do that, uh, for example, we, we built a model that, that looks at more than 500 publications in the digital health space, academic publications. We looked at what's the published evidence and the impact of these solutions. We then map with the, the healthcare spend categories in various countries to then be able to say what is the underlying value that, for example, patient remote monitoring brings to a health system on a patient perspective level, but also on a health system financial perspective. For a, a country like Germany, where I'm from, that would be 3.3 uh, billion euros and telemedicine would be another category. That's a bit where we are sort of trying to ground everything into the value um, that this delivers in the health system. And then I think that the second thing that, that I often feel is different is uh, thinking about it sort of beyond the current silos. So a lot of people these, uh, this year talk about healthcare ecosystems, so happy to use that term. And, but at the end of the day, right, for me, the question is how can we, how can we achieve behavior change both on the patient and citizen perspective, but also behavior change on a system level, right? Be it providers or be it health insurances. In that respect, I, I find it helpful to think about these ecosystems and journeys, right? And when I look globally, Saul, I, I currently see you know, in a, in a slightly simplified view, six main archetypes of, uh, of health ecosystems being built. There is sort of the, the pharmacy primary care ecosystem, right, where, where then um, like uh, companies like Zorose, for example, in Europe are combining pharmacy with primary care services, something that has been two separate silos, um, at least in Europe since the medieval ages, right? And then there is sort of other archetypes being built uh, combining primary care with secondary care solutions, other archetypes that are combining um, health insurance with primary care services, like what, uh, what for example, Ping An is doing um, in China. And that is actually then an interesting approach from my perspective when I think about these healthcare ecosystem archetypes. Are they better or could they be better in in creating that behavior change, right? And a number that I always find fascinating is that the German physicians spend on average eight minutes with their patients, right? And then thinking through, could we design a journey or an ecosystem that actually that actually helps the citizens and the patients to change their behavior towards more healthy choices? And in, in many case examples, I would say I'm a pretty motivated patient, but I can't change my, my behavior sustainably um, after an eight-minute um, intervention or a, or a session with a doctor. Right. So in that sense, thinking about it more from a, a journey perspective or putting it the other way around, what are the, the touch points that a citizen like Saul um, has over the year from a health perspective, then how could we support him to make um, healthy choices um, along these touch points, right? I think that is different 
and um, I find helpful to to achieve that that change. Yeah, thanks for that, Tobias. And and uh, you know, you mentioned a couple models, all of them involving primary care. You know, this focus on on primary care compared to specialist care. You know, like I think is is something that we're all becoming more more cognizant of the importance of it. And you also mentioned the importance of not just having those touch points, those eight minutes, having that continuity, that continuity of care. And that's where the difference is made. So I appreciate that. How has what you guys are doing improved outcomes or or made business better, right? So these are some of the insights how do they translate into the into the day to day? Well, you know, most projects, as uh, as you know, are, are confidential. But I'm I'm happy to say that you know, for example, in 2020, there's been, of course, quite a lot of work in healthcare uh, with the with the COVID 19 pandemic, and I think their digital health is a beautiful example of uh, how digital health has actually saved people's lives, right? Um, and I've seen that firsthand uh, how digital health and how precision medicine can save lives. So that's why I'm motivated to bring more of these benefits to to health systems. If we use COVID-19 as an example, right, I'll, I'll just talk about a pilot project that I find pretty cool in the UK. There mm-hmm. people use patient remote monitoring for the management of COVID-19 um, patients. They called it virtual wards, and um, if people are interested, they can look look at a, a brief article about it in uh, the British Medical Journal. And uh, what pretty much the objective of that um, of that project was was uh, was twofold, right? First of all, trying to spot complications really, really early and be able to medically intervene and uh, help these patients. So, and then the second uh, objective was to have a tool or a digital health solution rather that enables a doctor to continuously monitor that patient instead of having to make a yes-no decision the moment that this COVID-19 patient presents, right? And um, as we've learned from some of the cases in, in March, April, right? A lot of patients in, in such, such a situation were actually hospitalized, right? Because the doctor felt, oh, this is sort of my third or fourth COVID-19 patient that I see. I'm not quite sure how this will evolve. The patient doesn't look good. So let's hospitalize that patient to be on the safe side, right? And if you apply patient remote monitoring to COVID-19 patients, you actually have have a few very interesting effects. On the one hand, when uh, patients submit, the, let's say, their body temperature, their oxygen saturation in the blood, and um, and let's say a survey around breathlessness and um, and breathing problems, right? If they submit that three times a day, then you are able to spot complications really early, right? And I'm just quoting the number uh, from that publication. 244 patients were in the very first initial pilot cohort and zero of them died. And I think Mm -hmm. that is a remarkable result, um, especially since most people seem to be talking about telemedicine and other COVID-19 related tools. But I'm personally very excited about this this result, uh, how patient remote monitoring can actually help, right? And then the, the other feedback that I hear is on the doctor side, doctors like the sort of the the feeling of safety and security that such a digital health solution can give to them because they know 
the patient might not be looking great, but I don't have to hospitalize that patient right away because in three, four, five hours, I get the next reading. And then when things really deteriorate, I can step in very, very early. There are even examples where patients with COVID-19 had complications, onset plus, uh, you know, including pulmonary embolism. And even those patients could be saved because the doctors saw it really early and could, uh, could intervene. Right. And also the patient feedback is uh, extraordinarily positive. People saying that, uh, you know, they felt looked after. And finally, finally, if you, if you just then apply that to a health system view, right? And, and sort of this autumn winter, at least in the Northern hemisphere, this autumn winter situation that we have now, think about that you are the, the doctor looking after COVID-19 patients, right? And you've got sort of then a dashboard in front of you where you would then can easily in a prioritized way look after 100, 200 patients, then the feedback from doctors is that in this prioritized list of patients where the patients with the highest fever or lowest oxygen saturation are at the top, you can take about 10 minutes and then you scroll through your list. That is sort of the live feedback that, I, that I've heard from doctors there. Anyway, so that's a bit, uh, the um, as you can see, <laughs> the, the improved outcomes that I'm very excited about. And uh, of course, that doesn't, that is not just limited to COVID-19, right? Um, all sorts of uh, diseases could benefit from patient remote monitoring, um, both in the COVID-19 space, where you then can envisage patient remote monitoring as a safe pathway for people with COPD, fibrosis or oncology to have that lifeline to their doctor and um, that uh, sometimes uh, got uh, interrupted in spring. But some of the doctors Doctors in this program actually said, wow, this is so cool. Can I actually use it also for just uh, non-COVID-19 patients? Yeah, you know, and that is exciting to see the application of remote patient care to other things outside of COVID, because a lot of times these chronic diseases that need continuous management just get those episodic you know, visits. And then you mentioned clinician safety. And I think, you know, the concern of clinician safety has been has been elevated due to the pandemic. The use of digital technologies to manage, prioritize, and sometimes even control a monitor remotely mm. could be very useful. So, you know, this is certainly an exciting time. Having the right model to approach this environment is critical. You, you've given us some you know, high level examples, obviously, with the short time that we have today, we can't go deep. Uh, but you've given us some good glimpses into some models that could work as uh, companies and, and organizations and providers address some of the challenges and opportunities today to be as what would you say is one of the biggest setbacks that could be experienced, maybe something that you guys went through? And what was a key learning that that came out of that? Or that could come out of that. I think there are quite um, quite a, a few learnings. I would say with digital health, I've had setbacks and learnings both on a on a sort of system level um, as well as a um, a personal level. And if I start with the system level, a lot of the setbacks can be explained by um, who owns who owns and who earns the money today this digital health solution or this innovation is addressing, right? It sounds like a almost a shark tank uh, or dragon's den kind of question, but unfortunately it is, is, is very true because the healthcare economics 
how they are set today are, are sort of incentivizing certain behaviors. They are incentivizing it on the citizen level, on the physician level, on the health insurance level. In that sense, when I work in digital health solutions, we usually look at that, right? We, right. we on the one hand, look at the underlying value of the health system as we, we talked about before. But then on the other hand, we look at sort of the economic incentives and the economic flows. Who's earning what for which type of, of activity? In that sense, I think also how, how now people in Europe and sort of on the European continent are currently thinking about it, right? Which has been part of the healthcare innovation roadmap for Europe for the, the years from 2020 to 2030. Some of the setbacks from the past where it's been very hard to implement things due to incentives, the question has now become, right, how can healthcare economics and healthcare incentives also be adjusted in a way that we actually promote health instead of try to fix disease. In that sense, that has been some of the setbacks that I've seen in the past, but also where I'm hopeful that some of the discussions that are happening today about future healthcare economics, future healthcare incentives are actually promising and, uh, and much needed. And yeah, I think, um, you know, if I think about it on a more personal level, right, one of my own setbacks that I've um, had is is and was my, my own realization a few years ago, how I personally dealt with health, right? And how I dealt with my health and how I dealt with stress. And I realized that it wasn't very sophisticated. And I have to <laughs> admit that, you know, I, I started caring about stress management um, and how it relates to health and um, your own personal situation about five years ago when I realized that, you know, I had, I felt like I had a wonderful life, a wonderful wife, a wonderful family, a wonderful job, right? I worked on things that I really cared about, but, you know, I personally felt quite stressed uh, on a day-to-day -day level. Mm -hmm. And for years, I had struggled with um, what we could describe as recharging my batteries, right? I was brought up with the principles that you first finish your work and then you relax. Mm -hmm. Right, but what if, at least in my perception at the time, work never ends? There's always yeah. more cool things that you can do, right? Uh, be it as part of your work, be it sort of cool digital health or healthcare innovation projects outside of work, um, etc. So in the past, that meant that I worked very long hours, I slept too little, I then felt bad the next day, and so on. You know, as you know, I'm a biochemist, so so then I also looked into this topic from a scientific perspective. And then you find that it's pretty obvious, right? Lack of sleep, for example, directly correlates with stress and, and feelings of anxiety, right? So it, it's a real vicious cycle. It is. Yeah. It, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I, I feel like as busy professionals, we we all go through it and, um, you know, and it's normal and we have to stop and we have to evaluate our own personal routines. You know, I was working with a, with a trainer for a long time and then I stopped and then I just noticed myself gaining weight. And before you know it, you know, like three, four months, I'm like, okay, get back with the program, you know? And so it certainly is uh, challenging. And now COVID, layer in the COVID challenge on top of that, it does become more challenging. So I appreciate your openness to sharing some of those things, Tobias. And, you know, I think uh, you, you provide a good example, you know, of, of what it is to be able to manage a lot, but yet still get some good sleep enjoy your family while you're at it. So Tobias, you know, I really appreciate you sharing uh, the challenge and, you know, having to take care of yourself better. 
how did you do it? Like, what did you do to solve it? Yeah, good question. For me, it, it's been a journey, right? And and to be honest, I'm still on the journey. And I, you know, I, I improve or at least try to improve um, as I as I go along. If I think back um, five years, I the first thing was that I um, I started working with a with a coach. I, I I personally sort of saw it as a initially I saw it as a stress management topic, right? So um, then um, I started experimenting with uh, with meditation, and uh, that was actually a huge game changer for me, right? Initially, I was quite skeptical. I was very much that person, you know. I I lived in my head, right? For me, it was sort of always what's the story in my head kind of situation, right? And then I realized uh, through meditation sort of that there is actually so much more, right? Um, and for people who are really good at that, uh, they probably start laughing now. But, uh, you know, for me, it was then a realization of, okay, there is sort of the story in my head and then there is sort of the emotions underneath. And then underneath the emotions, there is sort of the body sensations, right? And uh, so in my example, that would be, you know, the story in my head would go sort of go on and go on, right? And then I would become aware that actually there is now stress and anxiety as an underlying emotion here, right? Um, and the body sensation connected to that, um, at least for me, um, was and, and, and still is a very tight uh, knot in my stomach, right? Um, and when I realized that, right, that was already um, a big step forward for me. When I then also realized that when I meditate and I start thinking about positive things, like, um, for example, having my son or my daughter on my la- sitting with me on my lap or so, I could really feel how that tight knot in my stomach started uh, releasing, right? And that was sort of a bit the start of the journey. I then also got into, into improving my sleep and particularly my deep sleep. Right. Uh, that's then also where digital health comes in again with wearables. And, um, you know, to cut a long story short, today I sleep a lot more with a healthy amount of deep sleep. And it's incredible how this change has paid dividends. Right. I'm a, I'm a happier person. I feel like I'm also better husband and father. And it also feels like I'm, um, I'm uh, more successful at work. Right. And, uh, and this has actually led to, to actually me also being asked to lead a program that we in, in, at McKinsey call my experience. Right. And that's a program where, where I'm happy and, and very excited to do healthcare innovation within our company. Right. Um, it's a program that pretty much helps people be at their best. And, and that means that includes a lot of the things uh, related to health and well-being that we talked about. It includes thinking about your purpose. It includes sleep, fitness, nutrition, stress management, and anxiety management, right? And I'm very happy to lead this program for, for McKinsey Germany and, and see the positive impact uh, this program has on, on individual companies and, and also the company as a whole. Oh, that's awesome, Tobias. And you know, it's it's great that you didn't just stop at yourself, right? You you went beyond and said, wow, like meditation, better sleep, de-stresses me. I want to share this with my team. And so kudos to you for doing that. That's a, that's a great story. So let's take a step back here and look at, you know, the, the economy, the world, the business. What are you most excited about today? This year, this year, of course, I'm excited that hopefully um, there is uh, progress being made on, on COVID-19 and the pandemic. But beyond that, I'm very excited about some of the work that colleagues have done. It's a study called Prioritizing Health. All right, It was done by our think tank, the McKinsey Global Institute. And there my colleagues looked at uh, healthcare from a different lens. 
they found that that it would make a lot more sense to think about health and healthcare as an investment rather than a cost to be controlled and managed downward. And what makes me excited about is some of the things that they found and some of the messages that come out of it, which I think are, are great messages uh, for most people working in, in the healthcare industry and, and are concerned and interested in health and well-being more broadly. First, they found that using interventions that already exist today, the global disease burden could be reduced by about 40% over the next two decades. 40% by better applying what we have already today. If one translates that in terms of life expectancy, and more importantly, um, I feel sort of what is the amount of life you have in good health? Um, they, they, they pretty much found that pretty much 65, the age of 65 would be the new 55 if you, if you realize the health improvement opportunity. And that, of course, would be a big deal because today, at least in, in a lot of the Western communities and countries, life expectancy often still increases, but the additional life expectancy is life years being spent in poor health, right. right? Whereas, of course, everyone is much more excited about additional life years being spent in good health. I heard it called health span versus lifespan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Completely agree. Right. And if one then thinks about it in that respect from a 65 uh, would be the new 55, I think that's an exciting and, and very positive message. I think the, the third message that, that got me extremely excited about this study is that 40% of these health improvements could be delivered at less than $100 for each additional life year. So in that sense, there is sort of a lot of value on the table, right? And it's not like crazy expensive value on the table, right? It is affordable value if one looks at it from a health sort of um, intervention versus cost kind of curve. And I think that is another very promising thought if one thinks about health and well-being from a more from a more system level. And then finally, and that's actually what I find personally most exciting, is really thinking about health and healthcare from an investment perspective. If you're a leader in a country, thinking about healthcare as a an investment budget, right? And um, and there they found that pretty much every dollar invested in healthcare in that way would have a return return of investment of uh, two to four dollars. I think that is then something that's very exciting because in the past it has been very much that discussion of healthcare as that cost bucket, but healthcare as an investment and actually how do we want to live our health and well-being topics and how do we want to think about healthcare investment and healthcare economics, I think is a, is a hugely exciting topic. Yeah, no, Tobias, I think it's a good call out, you know, and um, an investment is a better way to look at it. Uh, it's uh, the health of a nation, the health of a, of a region certainly contributes to the wealth of that area. And so I think it's a, it's a great call out. You know, the marginal investment, I was about to call it cost. I mean, $100 per person per life year for a 40% improvement, that's cheap. And why not? You know, I, and so for those of you watching this and uh, listening to our podcast today, it's certainly something to think about, you know, these approaches and how we could tackle some of the largest challenges in our current healthcare environment. 
you know, Tobias is, is bringing up some great points for us to consider and also challenge your model, challenge your model, because there's an opportunity to do more and to do better. So Tobias, this is awesome. I, I've, I've really enjoyed the discussion today and, and the insights you've provided. And I'm sure the listeners and viewers have too. Before we conclude, I, I wish we could spend another hour together here. <laughs> but uh, obviously, you know, maybe we'll do a part two if you're up for it. But really, before we conclude, give us a closing thought and the best place where the where the audience today can get in touch with you and, and the, the people on your team to continue the conversation if something today resonated with them. Sure. Happy to. I guess for the close, closing thought, I just want to come back to what is on so many people's mind uh, these days. How can we manage COVID-19? How can we actually put something in place that can help the providers, the physicians, the nurses? How can we help patients? And how can we can we save people's lives? Uh, coming back to what, what I said earlier, right? Um, there's actually quite some thinking out there how Digital health solutions such as patient remote monitoring can be can be implemented and can be scaled. And a few thoughts for people in various regions, cities, uh, or countries listening to that. There is sort of a whole model around primary care digital health solutions where pilot studies have shown that, that doctors in primary care practices like GPs or outpatient practices, they can be actually trained and onboarded very quickly. Um, onto something like patient remote monitoring. And this can be integrated also into websites so that then patients don't need to show up in person or patients don't need to call in. But you can actually link that to, to uh, websites, have a few triaging questions on there, which of, of course is also then relevant uh, in autumn, winter, to distinguishing a bit between cold versus influenza versus COVID-19. And then linking that, linking that to patient remote monitoring, for example, download of an app. If I just contrast that with the, when I just had my daughter tested for COVID-19 a few days ago, she's negative. So, um, no worry. It's been a phone marathon until I found sort of the right practice who was then testing, um, at that particular day. It was a lot of paperwork. You could actually digitize a lot of these journeys pretty quickly where you, for example, would say the patient goes onto the website, enters their postcode, and then a few triaging questions. Then the patient can download the app. This app is connected to then a doctor in a patient remote monitoring team who, uh, who then um, follows up, for example. Or one could also imagine for more central jurisdictions or countries to put into place a patient remote monitoring team at a hospital. So there are hospitals, a few of them in Europe that have patient remote monitoring teams where then a standing team pretty much under the leadership of a professor or so is then doing patient remote monitoring. Then you could do that as a sort of the solution that you have that scales sort of and can cover different hotspots um, in um, in regions. But you could also see it as, as sort of a second line of defense where you could say in a certain municipality, there are some primary care doctors being trained on that and they sort of have the first um, look, look after patients initially. And then if numbers rise and sort of the local capacity gets overpowered, then you have a few hospital uh, patient remote monitoring teams that are stepping in, right, and are taking over 100, 200, 500, 1,000 um, uh, patients like that. So in that sense, 
there is quite a lot of um, of knowledge out there. I'm happy to to connect people who are interested in this. Um, you know, given the time we are living in and uh, autumn winter wave that pretty much seems to have started, just want to put that out there and and happy to share some of this uh, thinking with people who might be interested. Tobias, this is great. Certainly, a lot of things for us to think about as we as we conclude here today. And um, for those that want to engage with you and you know further continue a conversation with you, Tobias, what what's the best way they could reach out to you or connect with your team? I guess the most pragmatic way would be to to connect with me on on LinkedIn to where where people can just enter my name and and company name on LinkedIn they can also find my contact email um or also if people prefer Twitter uh, they can find me at uh, t underscore silversun um, on Twitter too outstanding to be as hey this has been truly enjoyable and insightful and uh, folks just go to outcomesrocket.health in the search bar type in Tobias. And you're going to find all the links to get in touch with Tobias, as well as uh, links to anything that we've discussed. I'm not sure, Tobias, if that research article you mentioned is available for public sharing. Is it? Yeah. It is? Yeah, happy to put that into the link. Okay, great. We'll leave the research conducted by uh, Tobias's colleagues in the show notes. So just check all that stuff out there. It's uh, where you get all the synopsis of uh, everything we've discussed. Tobias, big thanks to you. Uh, really, really grateful that you uh, you made some time to be here with us today and uh, definitely looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you for having me. Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, Saul Marquez here. I get what a phenomenal asset a podcast could be for your business and also how frustrating it is to navigate editing and production, monetization, and achieving the ROI you're looking for. Technical busy work shouldn't stop you from getting your genius into the world though. You should be able to build your brand easily with a professional podcast that gets attention. A patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.